This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, with all the geopolitical crises we're facing, anything from climate change to the war between Russia, uh, Ukraine, and latterly, of course, the Israeli-Palestine conflict, which is truly heartbreaking to witness, the place of Europe in the world is becoming a little bit unclear. The big powers are Russia, of course, China, and the United States of America, and they are the ones who appear to be the ones that matter. Where Europe stands is much more interesting, and of course, from our point of view in Ireland, much more important. And to discuss this now, we're joined by Suzanne Lynch, Associate Editor and Journalist with Politico. Suzanne used to be the Irish Times U.S. correspondent, and it's a pleasure to welcome her to the stand. Suzanne, thank you very much for joining us. I read a piece, an interview in the FT with Michel Barnier, who was the European negotiator for Brexit, and therefore a fascinating character, someone that commanded the respect of everybody, even begrudgingly, I think, by the British. He's still active in politics, and in this interview, he said that he suggested that on the question of immigration, France should be much stricter. It should suspend all immigration from non-EU countries for three to five years. Further on in the interview, he says his rationale for that is to keep Marine Le Pen out of the Elysee Palace, out to stop her being president next time out. So he's, if you like, highlighting the fact that immigration is a big problem. He also hints that the relationship between Germany and France is not as solid as it used to be, and uh, that is a problem as well. What I want to ask you, Suzanne, is this. On these big issues, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, the Israeli-Palestine conflict, Europe's voice, with the notable exception of Ursula von der Leyen's solar run, really, to Tel Aviv to assure the Israelis that they had the unqualified support of Europe. Europe is the, is a missing voice, really. Certainly, it can't make the difference. And I wonder how united or disunited Europe is now in the face of unprecedented 
in my long lifetime, unprecedented geopolitical challenges. Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. The role of Europe is a big question at the moment because we're faced with, well, firstly, war on the European continent that many people thought they'd never see, that Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and now, uh, more recently, how it's responding and its mixed messages and division over the Middle East. But in a way, just when you mentioned there, I, I was previously US correspondent for the Irish Times in Washington. And I think a lot of this comes back to the Trump years. I think Europe, you know, got a, got a shock when Donald Trump was president and realized that for so long it was kind of dependent on America, but the NATO countries were effectively dependent on America for yes. their security because it's by far the biggest player in NATO. And then, you know, ideologically and on trade, you know, it was kind of this Western alliance, this liberal post-1945 world order where Europe and America were kind of singing for the same hymn sheet. Now, not always, obviously, there was divisions over the war in Iraq, but generally you felt, you know, they could depend on America. And I think that shocked a lot of people in Europe and realized, you know, we need to have our own identity and our own strategy when it comes to politics and trade yes. and foreign policy. Like, for example, we forget about it now, but the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan when the Americans just went, now that was under Biden, but the Europeans then were kind of scrambling, well, what's our strategy here? Yes. Um, so I think that's kind of been growing. And then when uh, von der Leyen was appointed a commission president nearly five years ago, she talked a lot about a geopolitical commission, that the commission needed to be more geopolitical. Um, and this ambition that the EU should be more geopolitically minded and make decisions maybe about trade or whatever through that geopolitical lens was welcomed by many. But then, as we saw over the last few weeks, how fraught that issue is. The problem is, if you're going to be geopolitical, like what issues are you going to stick your neck out on? Look what happened when, she, as you said, she went on the solar run to Israel and completely got backlash from member states and, and didn't see that coming. So it's very complex when you're trying to act as a geopolitical commission and yet a, you're the European Commission, you're not the European Council, which represents member states. And within that European Council, there are 27 member states with very different ideas on a lot of issues, not all, but on a lot. So in a way, I think she's kind of tested the boundaries of that. And now the EU is at this interesting stage where, you know, like our elections coming up next year, there'll be a new, maybe she'll be back again for another five years. But this question of where the EU's role is in the world, I think is still up for debate. And you've definitely, but I mean, some countries like France, you mentioned there, I think France wants a stronger Europe. Macron is a very strong yes. character. Uh, they have a big kind of military industry, defense. They want, you know, activity in the Indo-Pacific. And, you know, they want a stronger Europe. Um, so that's important. But I think the Israel issue uh, and the controversy over that has revealed how uh, divisive and how sensitive the whole issue can be. Yes, and I mean, without unity of purpose, the European Union will find it probably impossible to be a player in these big negotiations. For example, on the Russia-Ukraine matter, Hungary, for example, close, Orban is close to Putin in relative terms. On the Israel-Palestine, Ireland seems to be ahead of the game in terms of its support for Palestine, but that isn't universal across the European Union either. The relationship between France and Germany used to be the important and defining relationship in the European Union, Suzanne, didn't it? Mm -hmm. And now 
the relationship between Macron and Schultz, uh, the German chancellor, appears to be cool. And is that accurate, do you think? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This kind of Franco-German engine has always been at the centre of the EU. And actually, since Brexit, uh, one thing I've noticed over the last few years about being back in Brussels, obviously, Britain is no longer in the EU. But that's got implications for the balance of power within Europe, because you always had you'd France, Germany, and maybe Italy, the third largest country then, yes. and, and Britain at the time. And they kind of balanced each other out. And as a result of Britain leaving... Um, it's allowed, uh, you know, it's allowed France and Germany, I think, to become that more powerful, particular, fr- particularly France. And then on a lot of issues, particularly when it comes to free trade, you know, Britain is, uh, is an absent voice there. And that would have been a country that Ireland and a lot of northern countries in the EU would have aligned with. Whereas now the French are definitely pushing a more kind of protectionist Europe. They, they always have seen it that way, but that's not something like a country like Ireland would necessarily agree with. So I think that's changed the dynamic. And then Macron and Schulz, they have kind of clashed Germany and France a bit over kind of complex stuff about subsidies, you know, during the energy crisis after the war in Ukraine. Um, some of the rules in the single market were suspended temporarily. And, and you could see these big countries then plowing money into their own industries, the big heavy industry in Germany and France, whereas countries like Ireland or other, say, Nordic countries don't necessarily have this huge industry. What they want is actually to trade with you know, other countries outside yeah. Europe. So when France goes on about oh, strategic autonomy and how this is the new buzzword and how Europe needs to fend for itself and have much more of an industrial policy, you have a lot of countries saying, hang on, well, that's not what we, we want. We're small countries. We don't have that kind of resource. And frankly, you know, free trade and open trading patterns has worked well for our economy, they would say. So, but so France and Germany, um, they are still, I, I still think that what they, what actually happens, I mean, people don't say this really, but every country has a, have, have issues that are no go for them. Like, for example, for Ireland, it would be taxation. Yes. Um, the Belgians, for example, are trying to resist. They're trying to put in new sanctions on Russia and diamonds are being affected and di- and the diamond industry is big to Belgium. So everybody's got their thing. And I think France and Germany kind of tiptoe around each other and they kind of let each other um, win certain files or they might back each other around the EU table when they know it's a big issue for them. So like one of the big differences between the two is nuclear. Uh, Angela Merkel famously um, announced the phase out of nuclear energy in Germany. And then there was lots of debate once the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened and everyone realized, including the Germans, they were so dependent on Russian gas. Everyone, like a lot of people said, well, maybe we shouldn't have phased out nuclear. Absolutely. And then France is very pro-nuclear. It's got huge, you know, nuclear energy. So that's something that are really different ideologically, but they don't kind of, on EU rules, they don't kind of step in each other's core. You know, they say, well, let them do that if they want kind of thing. But um, I think what's very interesting is is the state of the German economy in particular. And, um, you know, they're now a budget, they're, they're struggling with deficits. And the government there is quite weak. They have a coalition government. And Schultz, I think, is very busy trying to keep that coalition government on the same yes. page. And doesn't seem to be, honestly, that present, that, you know, visible, nothing like Angela Merkel was in Europe. Macron is definitely a, a stronger uh, character. Although a lot of people would say then, getting back to your first question, that when the Russian invasion happened, neither of them kind of realized it was coming. And that's why von der Leyen stepped in and was a much stronger figure that the Americans were dealing with. So I think it's been a bit of a wake-up call for both those countries that this invasion of Ukraine happened on their doorstep in the edges of Europe. 
Uh, and now, of course, the, the situation in the Middle East. There's interesting polling out that Michel Barnier referred to in an interview with the Financial Times, uh, and it's very recent. The UK left. In the latest British polls, 57% of Britons say it was wrong to leave. 33% say it was right. And by a margin of 58% to 42%, they say they would vote to rejoin the EU. Now, that's they're remarkable figures, really, when you consider that the Tories are still in power, although not for long. The question I want to ask you is, how much did it weaken the European Union that Britain is out, its nuclear arsenal is out? Because if the EU wants to be a player in the world, you do need protection. What would stop, for example, Putin turning his guns on Poland or some other countries in the Baltic region? Europe doesn't have the means, does it? Mm. No, absolutely. I mean, this is been... Something, I'm so sorry, Suzanne. I'm yeah. not saying this is something you go to bed at night or anybody does worrying about, and I don't either. But if you are looking at the geopolitics of now and the changing you know, relationships for the worse, for example, today, Polish truckers stopped Ukraine trucks from coming in. Mm. The, there's a split there that you would think... Poland was very generous to Ukraine in the beginning, but then uh, there's been a change there, hasn't there? Yeah, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is one of the reasons why there was this need for an urgent response from Europe, because these Baltic countries and countries in the East who remember Soviet rule. Indeed. Um, and I remember interviewing recently, for example, the EU ambassador to Ukraine who was there, he just finished up, and he's an Estonian. Man, and when I was interviewing, I kind of said to him, I said, you know, I don't want to, he was maybe early 60s, I said, oh, I don't want to age you, but you, you probably remember, uh, you know, the Soviet times. He grew, you know, he grew up in Estonia and he said, I was in the Red Army, was his answer to me. Wow. And it was just this reminder to me, you know, if you think of somebody from Estonia and you think of his, you know, same age man in Ireland, it's a completely different experience. So, you know, we, that's half of, not half, but a huge number of countries in Europe have grown up with that direct experience. I mean, Angela Merkel grew up behind the wall in East Germany. So they yep. have that direct experience. And that is a big part now of the European, the EU experience. As the EU has got bigger and absorbed these former uh, East Bloc countries, that their perspective now matters. And of course, they know that they are kind of what's between uh, the Western countries in Europe and Ukraine or, and Russia. So uh, what we've seen in these countries, actually Poland is quite interesting. We've spoken about it before in the podcast, but yes. it had elections this year, a very big country, and it has been increasing its military capacity. Um, Germany, what's happened there, and it's, I mean, it's interesting now in terms of the budget, they, they have now, um, they're putting a lot more money into defense and armory that they didn't want to before. They felt for historic reasons they didn't want to. No one wanted an armed, a rearmed Germany. But now yes. we're in a situation where they are plowing investment into their defense. And now a lot of this is kind of going to Ukraine and then they're kind of backfilling their own. But still, you have a situation where you have the level of ramping up of military equipment and military development is huge now in Europe among certain countries. Now, that a lot of people are going to be uncomfortable about that. Um, but it depends, a lot of people feel they need to. Including uh, Irish. Uh, the Irish position on that would be we're neutral 
It's a big deal in this country, our neutrality, and any mention of a European army or a, a joint defense pact or anything like that would go down like a lead balloon, wouldn't it? Completely. I mean, we're, we're now, Ireland is one of only four now, there's four neutral countries that are not in NATO because Sweden and Finland decided to join NATO. Yes. Um, so there are now four and... Uh, so it's a, it's a dwindling number. Now, there are provisions there in the treaties and protections, but still, there's no doubt about it that the, the big conversation over the last year or 18 months has been about military abilities in, in Europe. That's been one of the big conversations. And there's an irony here, actually, speaking of Brexit, because when Britain was in the EU, for kind of different reasons, it was always against EU defence, further EU integration and defence and military Really? Policy because, Why? because they felt that that was a threat to NATO. They believed this right. is NATO, we're in NATO, and it felt that, oh, this is the EU getting involved in something it shouldn't get involved in, which in, for different ways a lot of Irish people would agree with. But their reason was, EU, stop getting too big for your boots. You're, you know, you're overstepping your mandate and defence and military is a job of NATO, not the EU. So, and a lot of the Baltic nations thought that as well. They're very pro-NATO, but they've now changed and they say, no, the EU should do it too. Now, I mean, there's another argument that the EU, you know, it's not a military power. And, and no, it was a trading alliance wasn't it? Exactly, that, exactly. That's the, that's the reason it was formed. Well, was yes. it the reason it was formed? It's certainly the reason we believe it was formed. But in this very changed world, Suzanne, there are dangers. Russia is a danger, for example. There's also a willingness of, say, Orban. Hungary was under Soviet rule Poland, I was in Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia when the Russians were in control. It was a living hell. I, w I was there playing football, but you could see it. The poverty, the food, the inequality, it was deeply shocking. And you would think that anybody who had experienced that would never want to think about Russians being on the move again. But Putin has expressed his view that the greatest tragedy of his life, lifetime was the breakup of the Soviet Union. Mm. And, uh, of course, then, if the EU, which it looks like it will eventually enlarge and add some of these countries, like particularly Ukraine, that is bringing the EU closer, literally, to Russia. Now, if you, add, if you add to that, Suzanne, sorry mm. to interrupt mm. you, Donald Trump, with his mm. dislike of NATO, uh, he'd probably second term, nothing to lose, abandon NATO. So where are we then? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a big fear here. A lot of people are talking about, when I meet, lots of people are saying, will Trump get back in? What does that mean? And it's the security side of things. They're worried about the Republicans in, in Congress now are yes. opposing further aid to Ukraine. And that makes those Baltic nations very nervous. There will be a history of people like, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, but these, these kind of, uh, Eastern European Americans who maybe emigrated after 1940s and who were quite yes. strong in the Republican Party, actually, that kind of a, the yes. old Republican Party, we want to call it that, when the Republican Party were all about foreign policy and security. Uh, and they're not so much anymore, but, you know, they see that American presence and they remember the American troops, the liberation, all that very strongly. So they're very worried about the defense and military implications of a Trump second term. Yeah. I think less so in the economy because in a way Biden, you know, continued a lot of the Trump policy when it came to trade. It's still very much 
uh, clamping down on China. And he introduced this unfortunately named IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, <laughs> uh, which really annoyed the Europeans because it affected electric car makers and stuff in Germany. So, you know, Biden hasn't, it hasn't been all roses under Biden. But what he has r- remained committed to is the transatlantic kind of defense yes. alliance. And that's worrying a lot of people here, particularly in the east of the EU. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Now, the election, although it's not yet confirmed yet, of Donald Tusk in Poland, was seen as significant for defeating the far-right party there. But that's not a done deal yet, is it? It's not a done deal. It's it's a story uh, in a lot of countries, I know, including Ireland. But, you know, when you've got a coalition government, uh, it, it's hard to get agreement. So uh, they're in the midst of that at the moment. And they're trying to put that government together. And he's kind of left-leaning parties coming in behind him. But they've kind of fractured. It was kind of a loose alliance now. So issues, for example, like abortion rights, Uh, for women that's you know that hasn't been sealed really yet as part of that government deal um also he's kind of got a problem because a lot of the uh the civil servants effectively or the machinery of state the media the judiciary were kind of the old guard so that's going to be kind of a difficult thing to handle too um look he'll probably get there but um but it's showing that and i mean it's back to what you were saying about michel barnier in a way now it's different in france but you know they're always under pressure these every politician from their left and right flanks in their own countries yes and you know it's easy to come out and campaign and then of course you know when you're governing then you have to try and keep that threat at bay I mean, that's arguably one of the reasons that Brexit happened was because Nigel Farage, I mean, Nigel Farage, UKIP, who had so little power politically in the UK and ironically had a big power in the European Parliament, a bit like Le Pen. You've got this tradition of of anti-EU politicians who come to Europe and use it as a platform to bash the EU. So, but because of Farage, you know, Cameron felt that pressure on his right and and kind of decided to act. And we all know what happened with Brexit. 
So, you know, it was interesting that point you made about the Barnier interview there that, you know, they are aware, they'll tell you what the thinking is in France. They're, Marine Le Pen, and she's softened a bit on certain issues. Like, you don't hear a lot of these right-wing anti-EU politicians saying anymore that they want to leave the EU. Like, you don't even hear Victor Orban saying that. They, don't, they know that that's not what their citizens really want. They're trying to maybe change it, and they're trying to... Um, you know, clamp down the immigration issue is a really hot button issue, and and those kind of yes. things. So, well, and Barnier sort of focuses very much on that. He is going to have clearly he's going to have another run in the next French general election or presidential election. Rather, he's going to have a run. He says the reason is to keep Marine Le Pen uh, from becoming president, and uh, just a general. Uh, is there optimism, Suzanne, in Europe that the 27 that are now in can find enough cohesion and resolve to be a force for good? I mean, if you were to ask the question, who speaks for Europe now in mm. this geopolitical crisis that we are facing? Who speaks for Europe with the authority and the ability to direct policy and even change it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the leadership that was once there, and I'm mentioning Angela Merkel as the obvious yes. person. Now we can talk about her legacy, and obviously it's, it, it became yeah <laughs> more controversial. She was undoubtedly running Europe. I mean, she was the queen of Europe. She was called, and I used to see it here in the summits where you know nothing was happening without her. She'd be having side meetings with with some of the big prime ministers at summits, and really that's where the decisions were being made. Um, Macron is trying to be in a way, but I think he's got a few things wrong, particularly the misjudging Putin and. Trying yes. to speak to Putin in the early days of the war. I mean, one of the I interesting issues as well for Ireland, because you're right about who speaks for Europe. And she, von der Leyen tried to with the Israel mid uh, Palestine issue and it backfired. Um, so the, the challenge for the EU is to balance all these uh, uh, views. Now, what's a kind of dangerous moment for smaller countries like Ireland is that one of the big debates, the, the German uh, foreign minister, um, I was in Berlin a few weeks ago and she was making the speech about how if the, basically the argument is if the EU needs to enlarge and get bigger, it needs to reform internally. And I think everyone kind of agrees that it's a bit unwieldy. Yeah. But one of the issues is that each country has a commissioner, 27 EU commissioners. Now, this came up in the Lisbon Treaty, I think, in Ireland, where Irish people rejected it because they didn't want to reduce the number of commissioners and lose their commissioner. And, but this looks like that might happen at some point. Now, in a way, you could say there are there are too many commissioners now because you've got a commissioner for this, that, and the other. Where you know you actually probably only need about fifteen. So one way around it might be that they rotate it or something like that. But this idea that if the EU gets bigger, obviously the power of smaller countries is going to be diluted. It's yes. as simple as that. So I think they smaller countries, I'm thinking like Portugal, Ireland, Malta, they're all very aware that as the EU grows and develops and becomes more geopolitical and more focused on defense, that its voice, you know, can't be suppressed. And that's going to be a big focus about how the EU reforms itself, that you don't shut out the smaller voices and that right. countries like Germany and France will then really uh, be dominant. And then actually big countries like Ukraine, if they join, or Poland, too, which are big countries. So uh, I think it is an issue. And I think the problem now is that fracturing of Europe, just one little, I mean, this week actually is yet another election in the Netherlands. There's something like six parties. It's, it's completely fractured politically as a country. You right. know, and it's just an example of how difficult it is to get one strong view on something within 
each country, let alone within the EU. So it, it is a real challenge. Just a final question or point, Suzanne, about their European elections next year, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in How June. significant will they be in your view? They will be. I think they're going to be a, gr- a very good sign of where the political temperature is. So, you know, each right. country sends their MEPs, Ireland will. And, and in a way, uh, uh, particularly in a lot of countries, they're not that important. But at the end of the day, um, the people that they send, the people choose to send to Europe matters. And everyone will be watching to see if there's more of a right wing tilt. Yes. You know, if you get these hard right people coming into the European Parliament. Yes. Now, we thought this might happen like in Poland. There's been signs that it might not. But uh, it is going to be significant. And then once those elections happen, then what happens is that triggers a process where all the sides kind of negotiate who are getting the top jobs as the head of the European Commission and Council and all these jobs. So they're supposed to kind of reflect the makeup of the European Parliament. But a lot of the time it's kind of done behind closed doors. But that it is going to be important because if you get like a, a really, I don't know, influential French commissioner becomes the head of the European Commission, that's going to make a difference to EU policy. You know, yes. so or or somebody from the Baltics. So yeah, they're going. It's going to be a big moment for Europe. It looks like it's early June, and uh, yeah, I think it'll t- tell a lot about the political temperature in Europe. A final question about Ursula von der Leyen: Has that solo run and that endorsement of Israeli policy, given what we've seen in the intervening few weeks, has it damaged her, and how badly? Well, I think it has damaged her. It's been her one major faux pas since she became commission president. And I think it's a sign of her kind of relative political inexperience. She was never a prime minister before, for example. And I think she completely misread and misjudged things. Um, now, talk to somebody in Germany and they agree with her. I mean, this was very much the decision of the German politician. Yes. Yes. She is very much on the German side on this. Um, and but it has damaged her. But I don't think I mean, if she wanted a second term as a commission president, I still think she'd probably get it. I don't think it's damaged her that much. But I think it's been a, a real lesson for her and her team. And they realize that they, the fact that they didn't even see that this was going to be controversial, controversial, I think, showed a political naivety and a misjudgment there. Uh, she's survived it. She will survive it. But yeah, definitely been damaged. OK, Suzanne Lynch, associate editor. Uh, with Politico uh, based in Brussels we're very grateful to you for joining us we're grateful to Suzanne to all of you for listening that's all we have time for now we'll talk soon bye bye